Over the next two weeks of our Thursday night gatherings, we're going to examine the biblical qualifications for local church leadership. When considering the current state of American evangelicalism and the Southern Baptist denomination, I believe that we are currently in an ecclesiological crisis. It might be a new word for you. The term ecclesiological or ecclesiology simply means the church or the study of the church. Ology, study of ecclesia, coming from the Greek ekklesia. There you have the word, ecclesiology, study of the church. So in any case, um, with that new term being noted at the beginning of our lesson, I believe that if we look at the Southern Baptist denomination as a whole and American evangelicalism broadly, I think it would be safe to say we're in an ecclesiological crisis. In fact, I'd be willing to wager tonight that there are at least two observations that we can make when considering most American Protestant evangelical churches. We look at the way those churches function. I believe there are at least two observations that we can make about such context. First observation, observation number one. In many cases, there is significant ignorance about what the Bible teaches on how church leadership should be structured. This observation can be seen in churches that are not committed to the discipline of preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, and in churches that do not have a robust plan of discipleship for their members in the full counsel of God's Word. It's churches like these that have caused such dreadful theology to spread throughout American evangelicalism. When examining the biannual State of Theology survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, we find that the vast majority of self-identifying Christians in America hold to heretical doctrine. Although some of these self-identifying Christians are likely unconverted, hence why they hold to heretical doctrine, I do believe that a sizable portion of those that hold to these heretical doctrines do so simply out of theological ignorance. In other words, there are many people in this category who do love Jesus Christ. They've embraced the biblical gospel by faith alone, uh, by faith alone, and yet due to just their biblical ignorance, due to a lack of discipleship rooted and grounded in the Word of God, these sorts of people do not have the ability to discern truth from error in the finer points of theology. People who fall into this category do not willingly reject core tenets of biblical orthodoxy. They're simply ignorant to what the Bible teaches on many areas. And while these types of Christians are still going to have to give an account for their ignorance, they're going to have to give an account to God for their unsound theology at the Bema Seat, they are examples of a reality that we all need to keep in mind. God still saves sinners even in spite of their doctrinal errors. None of us have perfect theology. We're all going to have to give an account for our theological errors at the Bema Seat. But nevertheless, we shouldn't excuse unsound theology due to a lack of knowledge. It's a problem that's present in many American Protestant and evangelical churches today. That now brings us to the second observation that I want us to make by way of introduction to tonight's lesson. Observation number two that can be made in regard to analyzing the current state of America, Protestant, and evangelical churches. An apathy to what the Bible teaches on how church leadership should be structured. That's observation number two. 
Observation number one is an ignorance about what the Bible teaches in regard to how the church should be structured. Observation number two is an apathy to what the Bible teaches regarding how church leadership should be structured. When compared to the first observation we just made, this second observation carries consequences that are far more severe. People who fall into this category are those who have been exposed on numerous occasions to what the Bible teaches about the structure of biblical church leadership. Whether it be from the pulpit, in the context of a Sunday school class, or in interpersonal discipleship relations, those who fall into this second category have been confronted with the teaching on ecclesiology on at least one occasion in their life. And yet, despite seeing God's instructions regarding the church in His Word, people who fall into this category are unaffected by such teaching. That is to say, they willingly choose to ignore and disregard the biblical expectations for church leadership by way of a number of selfish motives. It could be due to tradition. Their traditions that they hold to so dearly could cause them to <coughs> willingly reject or to willingly disregard what the Bible teaches on how the church should be structured. It could be due to complacency, the, the fear of changing the way that things have always been. People who fall victim to this way of thinking may say, you know, I see it in Scripture. I know the church should be structured like this. I know it should function this way, but we can't rock the boat. This is the way things have always been. Therefore, I won't accept what the Bible teaches here. In other cases, it could be due to a congregation simply not caring about what God's Word teaches on the subject. And that's about the most dangerous place you could be, to see something clearly taught in the Word of God, and just say, you know, I see it in the Word of God, I know this is what the Bible teaches, I just don't care that much about it. You know, it's just not something that I'm interested in doing. But those are all problems. Regardless of what the motivation is for those who fall into the second category, that list is by no way exhaustive. But regardless of what the reason is, regardless of what the motivation is for those who fall in this line of thinking, the Bible has a description for these types of people. According to James chapter 1, verses 22 to 24... These types of people are hearers of the word, but they are not doers of the word. Stated differently, they are people who know what the Bible teaches on a certain subject, but they care more about doing things their way than doing things God's way. And my friends, while it is certainly true that we all fall short of perfectly obeying God's word and what it instructs us to do in this life. None of us are perfect. None of us are, are, are purely flawless in our obedience to the instruction contained in Scripture. We do know, nevertheless, that in the word of God, it is described as being very, very dangerous to have a lifestyle marked by willful disobedience to God's word. Willful neglect to God's Word, choosing to disobey Scripture's commands due to apathy. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. 
In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, we find that if, if a person receives knowledge of the truths of God's Word, but continues to live in willful rebellion to such truth, then they no longer have any grounds to claim Christ's sacrifice for themselves. Read that text when you get a chance. It's very scary stuff. If you live in willful, unrepentant sin in light of having read the Word of God, seen what it says, but just ignoring it or disregarding it, the writer of the Hebrews says, you can no longer claim Christ's sacrifice for your sins. It's no longer valid for you. Why? Well, it's certainly not because Christ's sacrifice isn't sufficient to atone for their sins. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is perfectly sufficient to atone for any sinner and all sins committed in this life. It's, it's perfectly sufficient. But the reason why it's not sufficient for the one who disregards the instruction of the Word of God willfully is because their lifestyle reveals the fact that they haven't totally trusted in Christ's perfectly sufficient sacrifice. You see, your lifestyle can undermine the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for your sins because your lifestyle reveals whether or not you've trusted in Christ to begin with. As we learn from the central theme of the book of James, true saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. So even when dealing with something as narrow or specific as biblical ecclesiology, something as narrow or specific of the, the structure and the functioning of the church, the message is still the same. A willful rejection, a blatant dismissal of God's design for church leadership could very well be evidence of the absence of genuine faith if a lifestyle continues to push away the truth for whatever reason, for whatever motivation. If you come to grips with the Word of God's teaching on how the church should function and you're unwilling to be shaped by it, if you're not willing to allow your church to be molded by that truth, you very well might not be a Christian. And that's difficult to say tonight, but it is true nonetheless. So, it is of vital importance for us to know what the Bible teaches about the way a church should be led, and in doing so, for us to do everything in our power to ensure that the local church we belong to is faithfully adhering to Scripture's instruction about spiritual leadership. How's that for an introduction? <laughs> I say all that by way of introducing us to where we're going to be headed over the next two weeks in our current study. By the conclusion of next Thursday, Lord willing, it's my prayer that every person who attends these studies and every person who happens to listen to these recordings online will have had full exposure to at least the biblical fundamentals of local church leadership. While the series certainly won't say everything that could ever be said about the doctrine of the church, it would take months and months and months to unpack every intricacy and every nuance of biblical ecclesiology. It's outside the scope of this study to do so. Nevertheless, it's my prayer that at the foundational and fundamental level, this series will give us something to build on as we seek to understand the basics about how God's Word gives shape to and defines 
this element of ecclesiology, namely biblical qualifications for church leadership. So to accomplish my overarching objective for this two-part series, we're going to spend the rest of tonight focusing on the first of two God-ordained roles for spiritual leadership in the local church. That role that we're going to be looking at tonight is elder. The role of elder. And in our efforts to consider what the Bible teaches about the role of elder, we're going to spend the remainder of tonight's lesson by breaking this study into four distinct parts, or four distinct sections. Part one, or section one, will provide a biblical definition of elder. How does the Bible define the role of elder? That's what we'll be looking at initially. Part two will provide the biblical qualifications of elder. How does the Bible uh, say certain individuals must meet certain qualifications to meet this um, office or to be able to function in this office? What qualifications must a person have to do that? Part three will provide a historical analysis of the role of elder within the Southern Baptist denomination. How have Southern Baptists, which is what we all are by denominational um, identification, we're all Southern Baptists here tonight, so how have Southern Baptists, and looking to the Word of God, how have Southern Baptists thought historically about the role of elder? And of course, part four, section four, the final portion of tonight's lesson, is going to be devoted to a time of group discussion. We're going to talk tonight about the key Topics and the key principles that we cover for the rest of tonight's study. So that's your outline, that's your overview for where we're headed tonight. So with that in mind, let's begin our consideration of the role of elder by first examining the biblical definition. According to scripture, how should we define the role of elder? Well, in an article titled, Why Elder Rule?, Dr. John MacArthur provides us with helpful insight regarding how the role of elder is defined throughout the New Testament. If you've known me for any number of time, you'll know that I'm a big proponent of not needing to reinvent the wheel. So, um, Dr. MacArthur, in a lot of ways, gets to the heart of the biblical definition of the role of elder, and because of the way that MacArthur chose to address this definition, I thought it would be helpful to provide you with the exact excerpt, edited lightly for readability, of course, but this excerpt with its corresponding source is included in your handouts, and as we seek to understand how the Bible defines the role of elder, I want us to read this definition together. Follow along with me in your handouts at this time. As we read Dr. John MacArthur's definition of elder in light of how Scripture depicts this specific rule. This is a direct quote from the article, Why Elder Rule? MacArthur writes, Biblically, the focal point of all church leadership is the elder. An elder is one of a plurality of biblically qualified men who jointly shepherd and oversee a local body of believers. The word translated elder is used nearly 20 times in Acts and the Epistles in reference to this unique group of leaders who have responsibility for overseeing the people of God. 
As numerous passages in the New Testament indicate, the words elder, overseer, and pastor all refer to the same office. And of course, as you note in your quote, MacArthur includes the Greek words there. Presbyteros for elder, episkopos for overseer, and poimen for pastor. But he continues, in other words, overseers and pastors are not distinct from elders. The terms are simply different ways of identifying the same people. The qualifications for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and those for an elder in Titus 1, 6-9, are unmistakably parallel. In fact, MacArthur notes, in Titus chapter 1, Paul uses both terms to refer to the same man. All three terms are also used interchangeably in Acts chapter 20. In verse 17 of Acts 20, Paul assembles all the elders of the church of Ephesus to give them his farewell message. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to pastor the church of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-2, to 2, Peter brings all three terms together as well in keeping with the model that we just saw from the um, from St. Luke in Acts chapter 20. Peter writes, Acts, or excuse me, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, pastor the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So did you see that in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5? You have the term elder, the term overseer, and the term pastor. All those terms, all those designations in Luke's writing in Acts 20 and Peter's writing in 1 Peter 5, they're all referring interchangeably to the same role. That's MacArthur's point here. He continues from there. He writes, as indicated in these passages, referring back to Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, and of course 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. As indicated in these passages, the different terms indicate various features of ministry, not varying levels of authority or separate offices as some churches espouse. Therefore, MacArthur concludes, the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that each local body of believers is shepherded by a plurality of God-ordained elders. Simply stated, this is the only pattern for church leadership given in the New Testament. Nowhere in Scripture does one find a local assembly ruled by majority opinion or by a single pastor. End quote. It's a lengthy quote, lots of scripture references there, but that gets right to the heart of the biblical definition of elder. If we could summarize what we just heard from Dr. John MacArthur, according to the testimony of the New Testament, the role of elder is to be equally shared by a plurality of biblically qualified men who are entrusted with leading a local church in its doctrine and in its practice. Regardless of if you want to call somebody an elder, Regardless if you want to call somebody an overseer, or regardless of if you want to call somebody a pastor. 
you are nevertheless speaking about the same God-ordained role. That's the testimony of the Word of God. And if I could just take it a step further, on the basis of the New Testament's depiction of this particular role in spiritual leadership, every local church that has people in the role of pastor is a church that has elders. That's just by definition, by the way the New Testament uses these terms interchangeably. So in one sense, assuming that a church has people who serve in any pastoral capacity, it is impossible for a church to not have elders. Even if a local church is staunchly against the idea of elders, you can't take away from the God-ordained role of elder unless you're willing to renounce it entirely from pastoral roles in the local church. Does that make sense? You can't just say, you know what, we don't like elders, so, they don't, so, so we don't affirm them in our church. Well, do you have a pastor in your church? Well, yes, we do. Well, then you have an elder, biblically speaking. We do. Different terms used interchangeably for the same role. And of course, for the sake of argument, if a church should just choose to say, well, you know what, we're so against elders that we don't even want to have pastors anymore. We're just going to get rid of the pastoral role entirely. For the sake of argument, if a church should choose to do that, then on the basis of the Word of God, as we just read from MacArthur's depiction of the role and definition of elder, you've then ceased to be a church. You want to get rid of the pastoral office? You want to say we don't want to have elders as a part of our church? You no longer have a church biblically. And if such a case should ever arise, the members of that church should leave such a context immediately. So, in final analysis, for most American evangelical Protestant churches, the question is not, do we have elders? It's not the question. Rather, the questions are likely any number of the following. The question shouldn't be, do we have elders? Maybe the question should be posed like this. Do we recognize the God-ordained pastors as our elders? Do we see our God-ordained pastors as elders? That's a question that needs to be asked by many America Protestant evangelical churches today. If so, we recognize our pastors as God-ordained elders whether in regard to how they're perceived by the church or in regard to how they operate in the church, do those God-ordained elders, those God-ordained pastors, do they lead your church? Are those people who are in the God-ordained role of pastor, are they the spiritual leader of your church in practice? Or are they just no different than any other member in the congregation? Are, are, are they just the same as any other member in your fold? It's another important question that could be asked by a lot of America Protestant evangelical churches, particularly in the Southern Baptist world. Another question that we could ask in regard to this subject is, do the elders of your local church meet the biblical qualifications for the role that they hold? Or do you simply have people who are there because of their popularity? Because of how much money they give to the church? 
because of the fact that, hey, you know, they're pretty good at giving a sermon. So we, we let them go up there up front on Sundays and Wednesdays and preach. These are questions amongst other questions that should be asked by many churches today, especially in our Western context. So regardless of generation and regardless of location, these are important questions for us to ask as members of a local church and for, of course, other believers to ask as respective members of their local church. As it pertains to FBC Edna, where the vast majority of us preside tonight at this point, may we likewise be found faithful to address questions such as these with honesty and transparency with the Word of God. We need to honestly assess as members of FBC Edna, or for those who are listening, whether here or online, you need to ask yourself these hard questions about whether or not the church you belong to has biblical God-ordained elders in place, and if your church recognizes them as such. Not just theoretically, but also in practice. That brings us to the second part of tonight's lesson in which we will examine the two foundational New Testament passages that define the qualifications for serving as an elder in the local church. So we just looked at the definition of an elder. Now let's look at the biblical qualifications for the role of elder. The two main passages that are essential to defining the qualifications for elder are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. to in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Along with the handout that each of you received upon coming to tonight's lesson, you should have also received a single-page document which contains a five-column chart. I know most days I give you one page that's got uh, two sides of information. Tonight you guys got an extra document to look at. So uh, I'm sure you guys are just overwhelmed with joy by receiving an extra paper. Hopefully it doesn't wind up in the trash after you leave tonight. But in any case, it's between you and the Lord. In that chart, in that second document that you received tonight, you'll notice that each of the biblical qualifications for elder are recorded side by side from 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7 and Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 9. You'll see them right there on your chart. And this chart, if you haven't figured it out by now, it's a harmony of these biblical passages that give us each explicit spiritual qualification that a person must meet in order to reside in the office or the role of elder. You'll also notice in that handout that in the very far column, the right-hand side, there is a detailed description for each of the biblical qualifications that are found for the role of elder. So after we take some time to first read through these two foundational passages, we're going to read that passage in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read the passage in Titus chapter 1. After we read those texts, we're going to work our way through this chart as a group. And in doing so, we're going to hopefully find a big picture overview of what each of these qualifications about elder actually are. Just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have ever really studied these qualifications for yourself? Anybody really taking the time to do a deep dive into each of the qualifications for this role? Well, that's great. Tonight we're going to do so. So, looking forward to us all learning together tonight um, about these qualifications from the Word of God. Let's start with the text, though. I need two volunteers, um, two people who have Bibles with them, 
to read. The first text that I need a volunteer to read is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Michael, you want to read that out loud for us? Very good. And then after he reads, we're going to read from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Can I get a volunteer to read that? Hannah, thank you very much. So I'll let you guys get those passages pulled up. And we're going to read those texts together before we turn to the chart. Michael, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take 1 Timothy 3 away for us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above approach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He... He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Thank you very much, Michael. And Hannah, whenever you're ready. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above approach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thank you, Hannah. Again, thank you, Michael, for your willingness to read for us. Um, so, just on the basis of these two texts, every person who's here tonight, every person who's listening to this recording, you've now come to grips, you've now come into... Um, a direct confrontation. You've, you've had a direct encounter with the two foundational passages in the Bible for the biblical qualifications for elder. What this means is that we now know that a shadow of a doubt, it's, not, it's, not, it's no longer hearsay, it's not something that we just made up, it's not something that is done by tradition. We know that the local church is to be governed, is to be led by a plurality of God-ordained elders. That's the first reality we can take away from everything that's been said so far tonight with regard to the qualifications for elder and with regard to the text that we just read that provide the qualifications. There's got to be elders in a local church for it to be a true biblical church, not just one, a plurality. Okay. Second reality is that elders aren't just something that you just, on a whim, pick and choose, yeah, I think that person would make a great elder, but that person maybe not so great of an elder. It's not just a, a, a role or a club or, or this, this task that you go into in the local church arbitrarily or based on popularity or based on some personal agenda. There are distinct qualifications set forth in the Bible that a person must meet as an overarching habitual pattern of life 
in order to serve in this particular role. In case you haven't picked up on it by now, perhaps the most obvious qualification for serving as an elder, as referred to in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, is that the role of elder is exclusively reserved for men. That right there will get you in trouble in a lot of America Protestant and Evangelical churches today. The role of elder is exclusively reserved in the New Testament for men. Why? Well, in God's infinitely wise and holy providence, He has chosen to limit the role of elder to men who meet these requirements that we just read of in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus 1 5 to 9. It was His wise and holy purpose to have men functioning in this world. So practically speaking, this means that any church or any denomination that allows a woman to serve in any pastoral capacity is in direct violation to the New Testament requirements for spiritual leadership. You want to know a true church? You want to know a church that has God's favor and God's blessing? Number one, Make sure that they even recognize the God-ordained biblical basis for elders. Okay? Number two, make sure that those elders are actually leading in the way that they're called to lead from the Word of God. And number three, very practically, very simply, very directly, make sure that the people serving in the pastoral office are men. If a church has a woman serving in a pastoral capacity, that church does not have God's favor. That church is not biblical. It doesn't mean that God can't work in that church to accomplish His purpose. God is never constrained by any sin or by any person to accomplish His purposes. He uses wicked kings and wicked leaders in sinful circumstances to bring about that of which He's decreed from before the foundation of the world. But my friends, in the final analysis, if a church does not follow this biblical requirement for local church leadership, they are not pleasing to the Lord. The word is very clear. Men are to be in the role of pastor or elder or overseer. Again, different terms for the same Role. And this is a very unpopular view to hold to in 2022, as I just mentioned moments ago. But, guys, it's clearly taught in the Word. I mean, the, the references to he and the reference to elders being the husband of one wife, I mean, it's pretty clear Paul's talking about men here. You really can't get around that. He also, in 1 Timothy 2, we don't have time to get into the weeds of that, in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and following, he even says that women are not to exercise spiritual authority over men, which pastors are in the highest role of spiritual authority in the local church, so that also limits the world to men as well. So this is what the Word of God teaches. I say that again with fear and trembling. I also want to make sure that we're all clear on this point. Just because women can't serve as elders doesn't mean they can't model these qualifications. This doesn't mean that men are superior in any way to women. In fact, quite the contrary. Many times women model these qualifications in ways that are far superior to that of Christian men. There's many times 
Where if you look at the men in a church compared to the women in the church, you may wish that there's women that could serve in the role of elder because they're so much more grounded. They're so much more spiritually mature than the men in that context. So don't misunderstand what the Word of God is saying here. What Paul is instructing in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Women are no less valuable to the Lord for service in the local church. They're, they're not subordinate to men in the local church. Rather, God, in His own plan and for His own glory in accordance with His own purposes, He's desired for men to have this world. We've got to get that right at the foundation before we can even begin looking at these other qualifications. Because in our own denomination today, there is a rise of women in local church pastoral capacities or elder capacities in our own community we have several churches with women pastors that is not biblical they are not biblical churches they do not have God's favor as a local church now having said all of that I want us now to take some time to examine the Biblical qualifications for elder from the New Testament. To accomplish this, I want you to grab your handy-dandy charts. And we're going to work through this chart from top to bottom. And I think what we're going to do here, just to make sure we're all engaged and that we're all thinking through this together as a group, we're going to start, I'll read the first line. What we're going to do is you're going to cite the passage that it's from, right? You see 1 Timothy 3, all the verses are recorded there in the far left-hand column. There's also a Titus column that has all the chapter and verse references there. And then you have the actual qualification next to those chapter and verse markers. And then on the far right-hand side, you've got the qualification description. Um, this actually comes, you can look it up online later, I mean, this is... Uh, basically a verbatim replica of, uh, of what is found online on the Gospel Coalition's website. Justin Taylor made this post back in 2019. Um, he, he took from the English Standard Version um, Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible, and he took from a book from John Piper, and he made this chart. So this chart comes from various resources, Gospel Coalition, ESV Study Bible, John Piper, it's all put together. It's a harmony of the uh, spiritual qualifications or the biblical qualifications for elder as found in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Titus 1, 5-9. So, let me read the first line, and then um, we'll just work around the room. Um, so, we'll, we'll do this together. Make sure we're all on the same page. Does everybody have a chart? Everyone good? Okay. So, 1 Timothy 3, 1, the qualification listed is one who aspires to the office. So, that's qualification. One who aspires to the office. And here's the summary of what that means. This qualification is referring to one who aspires to the role of elder. They want to be an elder. That's a desire of theirs. This does not exclude the possibility that this person is sought out and urged to become an elder by others but this qualification is simply getting at the fact that no pressure should be used that would result in an unwilling, half-hearted service. In other words, 
Anyone who has the role of elder should want to be an elder. Other people can say, hey, have you ever considered being an elder? We think you would make a great elder. Like, it's good to be affirmed by other people. But this particular qualification is saying that there needs to be an inner desire, an inner conviction to have this role, to serve in this capacity. All right, um, Michael, how about you take the second one, buddy? Uh, read it from the Bible? or No, just, just read. Um, for, so you'll read so 1 Timothy 3.2, and you'll just read over. Okay. Now, you don't have to read the passage, buddy. Just read from the, the chart. Uh, we already read the passage together. Above approach, he lives in a way that gives no causes for others to think badly of the church or the Christian faith. Very good. So, from 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6 and 7, this quality is saying their lifestyle shouldn't cause people to think poorly of the Christian faith. Their lifestyle should look as you would expect for a believer's lifestyle to look. Alright, next one. Wait, take the next one, buddy. Number three. A husband and one wife. If married, the man demonstrates faithfulness to his wife. If unmarried, the man demonstrates sexual purity. Very good. So, you, you should model a lifestyle of faithfulness to your wife. Or, if you're single, which, you know, not every elder, not every pastor is married. If it's not God's will for them to be married, then they need to live a life of sexual purity as a single man. Hannah, take the next one. Sober-minded, Very good. So, um, the, the idea here, you know, alcohol is, is one example of being under the influence or being enslaved to a particular foreign substance. The idea here is that an elder as a habitual pattern of life, they should be under no influence. They, they should be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They should not be under the influence of a foreign substance. They should be clear thinking. They should be they should be filled with the Holy Spirit, not under the control of, in our day, marijuana, um, alcohol. Uh, even could you, you could even make the argument, not somebody who's a glutton, not somebody who's just enslaved to not being able to control their eating habits. It could be anything that would cause them to be enslaved by a foreign substance. The elder needs to be disciplined, needs to be sober-minded, clear-thinking. Um, baby, take the next one. Self-controlled. He is sensible, prudent, reasonable, has good judgment. He understands people and how they respond. He is realistic and sees things consistently with other godly people. Very good. So, yeah, he, you know, somebody who can control what comes out of their mouth, control what they think about. Uh, if they recognize that they're thinking about something sinful, they, they say, okay, Lord, I repent of that. I need to focus on... On putting my uh, filling my mind with that which is excellent and pure and holy and so on, um, and by virtue of being self-controlled, not having a, a misconstrued understanding of the world around them, somebody who's very objective, orderly. All right, um, Michelle, take the next one. Respectable. He is honorable and dignified. He is diligent to not step on toes or offend anybody unnecessarily. Very good. So you, you see there. Um, 
The, the elder is not somebody... That, now, don't, don't miss this. This doesn't say that elders should never offend somebody or never step on toes. There's a key caveat here. Does not offend or step on toes unnecessarily. Because sometimes when you stand for truth or when you confront sin in love, you're going to offend. You're going to step on toes. So it's the idea that you're, you're so respectable, you're so gracious towards other people that you do everything in your power, as Paul writes in, in Romans 12, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You should be naturally at peace or showing respect towards other people in regard to this qualification for elder. Rebecca, you want to take the next one? Go for it. Very good. Thank you, Rebecca. So yeah, I mean, an elder needs to be somebody who's welcoming. Like, somebody who serves in this role should have their, their home open to anybody who needs help. They should be regularly inviting people into their home, whether it be strangers, whether it be people in need, whether it be members of a local church. They should be actively immersed into the context in which they're serving. Not standoffish, not secretive, but immersed into the body of Christ. All right. Uh, Karen, would you take the next one, please? First Timothy says, able to teach. And Titus says, able to give instruction. He is an apt teacher, skilled in teaching. He knows biblical doctrine well and is able to explain it to people. He is astute enough theologically that he can spot serious error and show a person why it is wrong and harmful. Very good. So, um, this particular qualification pertains to the spiritual gift of teaching. If, you, if you're not able to, to, to teach the Word of God, if you're not able to understand the Word of God, if you're not able to help other people understand the Word of God for themselves, and if you're not willing to identify that of which contradicts the Word of God, that of which is in conflict to the Word of God, if you can't identify error, then you're not able to be in the role of elder. Because the elders, the spiritual leader of the church, they need to be able to explain what we believe from Scripture, this is what the Bible says, and then they need to be able to identify, wait, wait a second, that's not biblical. That's an affront to Scripture. That's contrary to Scripture. So, you need to also be able to identify error. That's key for those who would hold the role of elder. Joanna, would you take the next one, please? Not violent. He's not pugnacious or belligerent, and his temper is under control. He's not given to quarreling or fighting. He has a con conciliatory. conciliatory bent. He does not carry resonance, re resentments. He is not hypocritical. Yeah, so this person is somebody, thank you for reading, this person is somebody who um, has control of their temper. Um, again, we've talked in the past, there is a time and a place for righteous anger. Um, that, that's, that is an appropriate response to certain situations. But an elder is not somebody who just flies off the handle at the drop of a hat. Somebody who's very, it kind of gets back to that idea of being self-controlled. Very objective, very long-suffering, composed. That's the idea here with this particular spiritual qualification. 
Charlie, um, would you take the one that says gentle? I know you had to step out, but uh, would you read that one for us, please? He is not harsh or mean-spirited. He is in kind and tenderness. He resorts to toughness only when the circumstances commend this form of love. His words are not acid, acid or divisive, but help and encouraging. Or but helpful and encouraging. Yes, sir. So again. Dovetails right with the idea of not being violent. You're an encourager, you're gentle, you're compassionate, you're tender, you only show anger, you only, you only show firmness when the situation requires it. When there is an issue with, with grave, unrepentant sin within the context of the local church or within the life of somebody that you know and care about and love and have a close relationship to, that may be a time to be firm. Or when the Word of God is being assaulted by error or is under attack, that's another time to be firm. But more often than not, you prefer to be gentle, you prefer to be compassionate, you prefer to be patient and composed. I'll take the next one since we're kind of back to me now. Not quarrelsome, not arrogant or quick-tempered. No, we just read that one, didn't we? No, we just read gentle. I'm sorry. I'm losing my spot here, and I'm the one facilitating the discussion. Um, not quarrelsome, not arrogant or quick-tempered. The elder is lowly in his demeanor, not speaking much of himself or his achievements. He counts others better than himself and is quick to serve. He sincerely gives God the glory for any accomplishment. So, um, putting others before yourself, like Christ put others before himself. Giving praise to God. Deflecting attention from yourself. And trying to build up other people to be more concerned about the edification and encouragement of those around you. That's the idea here. Um, and notice, not violent, gentle, not arrogant or quick-tempered, that, that's kind of the litany, right? Those are all kind of the package. So there's, a, there's really an intermingled reality there with, with what the Word of God is saying in regard to those specific qualifications for elder. Um, with, I want you to take the next one, um, the one that begins with a, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money or not greedy for gain. He puts the kingdom first in all he does. His lifestyle does not reflect a love of luxury. He is generous. He is a generous giver. He is not anxious about his financial future, and his ministry decisions do not revolve around his issue. Very good. So somebody who lives within their means, they're not enslaved to the love of money or to the fear of, man, I hope I don't go broke. I need to be a tightwad. I need to um, be a miser and be stingy. This is somebody who's generous but also wise with their financial resources. They recognize that everything they have is a gift from God and they want to use it in a way that brings them honor in a way that can maximize the advancement of the kingdom. Hannah, would you take the next one for us, please? Yes. First Timothy says, a good manager of his household and Titus says, a steward of his household. He is the leader of a well-ordered household. If he has children, they are submissive, not perfect, but well-disciplined so that they do not blatantly and regularly disregard the instructions of their parents. His children revere him. He respects and tenderly loves his wife if he's married. Very good. So um, a little bit easier for somebody who um, doesn't have a wife and kids, but nevertheless, um, the argument Paul uses in 1 Timothy is, hey, you know, if, if, if somebody can't even manage their little house, their wife, and whatever amount of kids they have, how in the world are they going to be able to manage 
potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people, depending on the context that you're in. Um, argument from the, the lesser to the greater. If you can't be faithful with little, how are you going to be faithful with a lot? Um, so that's the idea here. Somebody who has a, a well-ordered household, not a perfect household. We all make mistakes. There's always going to be sin. There's always going to be areas for improvement. But somebody whose house is in order. They've got a wife um, who is operating as a biblical wife. If they are married, they have kids who are respecting the authority of the parents by and large. If they have kids, um, and of course the husband is also treating his wife and kids in a way that um, Scripture calls him to treat them. Uh, Bell, go ahead and take the next one for us, sweetie. Not a recent convert. He is a mature believer. There is evidence in his life that he is walking properly with the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. So you want somebody who's professed faith in Christ long enough, who's followed Christ long enough, so that there's fruit that other people can see. You don't have somebody make a profession of faith in Christ get baptized, and then a few weeks later they're running the show in the context of the local church. You want somebody who's been tested by trials. You want somebody who's had time to be discipled and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, this is somebody thats that's been in the faith for a while. Somebody who has been able, by the grace of God, to experience some growth in Christ-likeness so that others can see that fruit, so others can affirm them in their relationship with the Lord. And of course the danger, as we read from Paul moments ago, if you get somebody in the office of elder who's a recent convert, there's a greater chance that they can either be puffed up, they can either uh, manifest the sin of pride, or they may be more liable to fall victim to a certain kind of temptation. They may fall into a dangerous pattern of sin that could have otherwise been avoided by virtue of not being in that lofty leadership role in the local church. Uh, Michelle, would you take the well-thought-of-by-outsiders one for us? He meets the standards of the world for decency and respectability, as the standards of the church are higher. Very good. So, you know, this is, this is like... How do your unbelieving friends and relatives and uh, people in the community see you? Um, in so, not, not what they've heard about you, right? We all know that people can spread gossip and falsehood and so on. This is talking about those who have time to, to, to see your life and to be involved with you. What do they see? What do they say about you as a result of having evaluated the way that you live? That's what's going on here, particularly by those who don't know the Lord. How do unbelievers who know you best see you? Do you walk the walk? Do you model a lifestyle that's in keeping with what you profess to believe from Scripture? Um, Rebecca, take the next one for us, please. A lover of good. He loves to be Thank you. Very good, Rebecca. So, another qualification for elder. Somebody who abhors unrighteousness, somebody who detests injustice, and on the contrary, on the flip side, somebody who loves good, loves righteousness, loves justice, wants to promote it, wants to see that model both in the church and outside the church, in the political realm, somebody who's going to vote for those who are going to promote the common good and flourishing of those 
virtues, justice and righteousness and goodness and so on. It's the idea here. Somebody who genuinely loves that of which is good. Karen, please take the next one for us. Upright. He cares about whether people are treated fairly. He wants to see justice in the world at all levels. Very good. And that, it's again, kind of another dovetail to being a lover of good. If you love good, if you love justice, if you love righteousness, you're, you're also going to be upright. You're going to model a lifestyle that's above reproach. You're going to want to see other people doing the same. You're going to want to see other people treated the right way as well. You don't want to see people have injustice committed against them. You want justice to permeate all aspects of your life and your relationships. And then, Joanna, you can take the last one. Holy. He is a person of devotion to Christ with a life of prayer and meditation. He loves worship and has a deep personal relationship with the Lord. Very good. So the idea there is simply this. The people in your church... Your relatives, the people who know you best, when they see you, do they see somebody who's marked different from the rest of the world? Somebody who's walking with the Lord. Somebody who loves His Word. Who is shaped and molded by the Word of God. Somebody who is sharing the Word, sharing the Gospel. That's the idea with that specific qualification. Well, there you have it, my friends. Those are the biblical qualifications for the role of an elder in a local church. And as I mentioned earlier, no individual, no man, is ever going to be able to model these qualifications perfectly. None of us can ever model perfect conformity or perfect obedience to what the Bible requires of us on anything. Even the most basic commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second being to love your neighbor as yourself. No one's going to do that perfectly. But in the final analysis, when the rubber meets the road... Are these qualities observable on a consistent basis? Is the overarching pattern of an individual's life marked by these qualities? There should never be a situation in a local church where a man is presented as a candidate for elder or is serving as an elder where there is a marked discrepancy in any of these categories. If, 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 if a person is lacking in one or multiple of these categories, maybe that's not the right time for them to be in the role of elder. It doesn't mean they can't serve in that capacity down the road. It just means now is likely not the right time to install them or to have them affirmed in the role of elder. And from your perspective, from those who are church members, whenever you're wanting to join a church or when you're considering staying at a church for any extended period of time, you need to, for a season before you join that church, you need to verify that the leaders of that church, the elders of that church, are modeling, insofar as you can see, these qualities. Because, my friends, one of the greatest sources for disappointment frustration, and ultimately causing you to leave a church and have to go somewhere else, is if you go somewhere and the God-ordained men in the role of elder or in the role of pastor, regardless of what term you want to use, if they're not modeling these qualities, you're likely going to wind up leaving that church. If you don't leave the church, you're going to face great disappointment, frustration, and um, heartache, potentially. You see a spiritual leader not carrying out their role as they should, that's heartbreaking for a believer who wants to see God glorified in the context of a church. So those are some practical things to keep in mind in regard to the 
biblical qualifications for the role of elder. So up to this point in tonight's study, we've surveyed a biblical definition of the role of elder. We've examined the biblical qualifications of the role of elder. And part three of tonight's lesson, I want us to explore a Southern Baptist perspective on the role of elder. How have Southern Baptists thought about elders in a local church over the past 177 years? That's how old the Southern Baptist denomination is. In fact, I had a dear friend of mine, I was talking to him today about where we were going to be going in today's lesson, and I brought the fact we're going to look at what Southern Baptists think about elders, and he told me, he said, Dewey, I just know those youth are going to be jumping for joy to get a little glimpse into how Southern Baptists have historically thought about this biblical role. But I told my friend, I said, you know what, buddy? We've got some very mature and hungry youth and adult leaders here, so they're going to enjoy every minute of learning about this perspective. Because it's an important perspective. We're Southern Baptists. And I've talked a lot tonight about elders and what the Bible teaches about elders. That's great. That's the ultimate authority. That's the ultimate source that we go to for understanding anything about our faith. But we're also Southern Baptists. We're part of a tribe. We're part of a heritage. We're part of a denomination. So it's important to kind of make sure we're on the same page with how those who've gone before us have thought about the Word of God. Make sure that if we're wrong... We can bring ourselves into conformity with them insofar that they're interpreting the Bible correctly. Or if they were wrong and we're right, we want to make sure that we're staying on the right track and not committing the errors that were made in generations past. Now, back to our question of focus. How have Southern Baptists thought about the role of elder in the local church since its inception some 177 years ago? Well, in thinking about this question and doing my due diligence to research for tonight's sermon, I found the historical scholarship of Dr. Mark Dever, the founder of Nine Marks, to be especially helpful. He published a work titled, By Whose Authority Elders in Baptist Life. And in that work, Dr. Dever notes that from the very beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention, which was founded in 1845, and all the way to the turn of the 20th century, think 1920s, 1930s, from about 1845 to the 1920s, 1930s, the spiritual leadership of Southern Baptist churches was overwhelmingly marked by a plurality of elders. That is the heritage of the Southern Baptist Convention. From 1845 to the 1920s, 1930s, 80 to 90 years of time, the spiritual leadership of this denomination was overwhelmingly marked by a plurality of elders. Listen to how Dr. Dever articulates this historical reality in the work, By Whose Authority? Elders in Baptist Life. You should also have that in your handouts so you can follow along with me as I read. Here's a direct quote from that work. He says, The first president of the Southern Baptist Convention... W.B. Johnson of South Carolina wrote, a, wrote uh, a book called The Gospel Developed. And in this book, he writes that each New Testament church had a plurality of elders. And then concerning his present day, so Johnson's saying, in the New Testament, each church has a plurality of elders. So when we compare that with my day in 1845... 
He writes, A plurality in the role of elder is of great importance for mutual counsel and aid that the government and edification of the flock may be promoted in the best manner. End quote. So, um, I, was, I was off by a year. Johnson wrote that in 1846, one year after the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. And he's saying the biblical model is that New Testament churches were governed by a plurality of elders. And in our present day, if we're going to have our churches functioning to the maximum edification of the souls who are in that church, we need to follow in their example. That's what he's saying here. So 1846, one year after the founding Southern Baptist Convention, the president of the SBC is pro-plurality of elders in local churches in the SBC. Now, let's fast forward to the year 1888. In the year 1888, we find identical convictions expressed by the likes of a man uh, by the name of J.L. Burroughs. Now, J.L. Burroughs served as the pastor of First Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia, for 20 years, and he'd go on to serve as the chairman of the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention for six years. And according to a book that Burroughs wrote titled, What Baptists Believe, he says, quote, Elders and deacons are the only officers Christ has instituted for the church, end quote. Burroughs is saying, you want to know who the spiritual leaders are in the local church? You better have elders, pastors, overseers. You better have that office, and you better have deacons, because that's what Christ has instituted for his church. So for Burroughs, echoing the same sentiments expressed by the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, Burroughs and Johnson are saying from 1845 to 1888 that a plurality of elders are the staple for spiritual leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. So from 1888, let's fast forward now to 1907. Basically, 19, 20 years after Burroughs' work was published, we see, at the time, the second most influential systematic theology work produced in the Southern Baptist world, Next to James Pettigrew Boyce's abstract of systematic theology published in the late 1800s, 1907, you have a guy by the name of A.H. Strong who publishes a systematic theology work. And in that work, Strong categorically observes the New Testament basis for a plurality of elders in a local church. He does, unfortunately, I think, he does leave the door open for modern-day scenarios where it could be appropriate to just have one elder in the local church. But nevertheless, despite that slight de uh, deviation from the men who came before Strong, Strong still provides in that work an explicit endorsement for an elder-led model of church government. That puts him in continuity with all of his Southern Baptist forefathers going back some 70 to 80 years. So, for the vast majority of the first century of the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, our denomination that we belong to, faithful men throughout the entire denomination and churches throughout all of the United States at that time, they believed that the Bible taught, as we just saw tonight, they believed that the Bible taught that a local church should be led by a plurality or a multitude of elders, more than one. A.H. Strong said maybe in some scenarios you could have one. But 
he still affirmed the necessity for elder-led government. But as we know from the present day, it wouldn't always be this way. This, was, this wouldn't always be the mindset embraced by the Southern Baptist Convention. By the middle of the 20th century, I think 1950 and beyond, maybe 1940, um, but middle of the 20th century, middle of the 1900s, the viewpoints of Southern Baptists shifted in an entirely different direction. We see a, a, a very slow, steady, and progressive pendulum swing in the opposite direction, which ultimately set the stage for theological liberalism at the end of the 20th century, um, which left the denomination in pretty significant disarray at that period of time. But in regard to the mid-1900s, st let's start there. Mid-1900s. The majority of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention had abandoned their commitment to the need for a plurality of elders presiding in local church leadership. During this time period, the Southern Baptist Convention had begun to embrace a form of church government that gave equal spiritual authority to all members of a congregation. And this particular style of church government that came on the scene in the mid-20th century, mid-1900s, in this particular style of church government, pastors did not have any more authority than any other member of the local church. That is to say, all church members had equal say, had equal spiritual authority in the church-wide decision-making process. Historically, this model of church government has come to be known as democratic congregationalism, or as you've heard me say in the past, congregationally led, congregationally ruled, as opposed, of course, to the historic Southern Baptist model of elder-led, congregational ruled. How did the Southern Baptists get here? What was the motivation for the shift? Well, I'll be the first to tell you, in studying for tonight's lesson, it's very difficult to find one precise and exact reason for why this ecclesiological shift took place in the middle of the 20th century. But I do believe, from what I was able to study, from what I was able to find in the days leading up to presenting this to you tonight, from what I was able to find, perhaps the most concrete reason for why the shift occurred was evidence in a modification from the 1925 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message to the 1963 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message. In that doctrinal statement change, we see a shift of thinking that I believe, and other scholars would agree, permeated the majority of the Southern Baptist Convention by virtue of reading American politics into the local church. The American political ideologies began to become the standard and the lens through which the local church operation should function going into the middle of the 20th century. Notice this paragraph that I've pulled from the 1963 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message. In the article devoted to the church, this paragraph was inserted. From 1925 to 1963, so roughly a 40-year time period, there's a shift to include this, this excerpt. Notice this. Here's a direct quote. 
The church is an autonomous body operating through democratic processes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In such a congregation, members are equally responsible. And then they throw at the very end of that, oh, by the way, uh, the scriptural officers of the church are pastors and deacons. So yeah, we recognize the Bible talks about pastors or elders, and it talks about deacons. But the way the church is going to function, it's going to be democratic. It's going to be by majority vote. It's, it's going to be a scenario or a context in which all members are equally responsible. This is a seismic shift in the Southern Baptist Convention's thought of the nature and functioning of the local church, and this is a significant deviation from what we just read together earlier in this lesson from the New Testament. So, um, this is where we find ourselves today. It is true that by the time the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 came around, there, there had been a small conservative resurgence, still in the minority today, by and large, in the SBC. But there has been in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a small conservative push in the SBC to get back to historic Southern Baptist and biblical roots. But to this day, my friends... By and large, this mindset that we just read from about the church operating under democratic processes and this mindset that all members should have equal responsibility and authority, this is still very much alive and well in the SBC. And here's some of the consequences that come from such a mentality. You find a decline in elder-led congregationalism or elder-led congregational rural church government. You're going to have also a decline in Southern Baptist church members recognizing the God-ordained spiritual authority bestowed to pastors. You're going to see a decline in that. You're also going to see a decline of those pastors not just being recognized as God-ordained leaders, but in practice, in function. They're not going to have any more authority than anybody else in the congregation. So in reality, though they serve in the role as pastor, they're no different than the eight-year-old that's been baptized and has made a profession of faith and votes at a monthly business meeting. You see, that is the consequence of this shift. And my friends, unless the Lord moves in power in our denomination, it doesn't look like things are going to get any better anytime soon. In our day... As I mentioned moments ago, you see the rise of women in the role of pastor. You see the rise of critical race theory in the local church. You see the rejection of orthodox doctrines such as the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of Scripture. This is all happening right now in our denomination. So before we transition into our time of group discussion, having now provided you with a historical overview of how Southern Baptists have thought about the role of elder. I want to exhort and charge everyone here tonight and everybody listening to the recording to pray for a resurgence of elder-led, congregational-ruled church government. Pray for a resurgence of biblically qualified elders in local churches throughout our denomination and throughout the world. Because, my friends, as far as the leadership goes, so goes the church. That's been the way it's been from the first century onward. 
You show me the leadership of a local church, I'll tell you everything you need to know about the culture of that church. As we've seen tonight, not only is it foolish to completely disregard the concept of elder, because to have pastors is to have elders by very definition. It's only foolish to disregard the concept of elder, but I hope we've all seen that it's just blatantly unbiblical for churches to not be led by a plurality of biblically qualified elders. The New Testament model is for elders to preside as the spiritual leaders of the congregation and for members of that congregation to graciously submit to the elders' spiritual authority and to graciously hold the elders accountable to modeling the Word of God in their personal lives and in their ministry. This is the healthy system of checks and balances that God has prescribed for His people to abide by until Christ should return. Let me hit home for a second. Let's get practical. For those of you who are members of FBC Edna, as it presently stands, our local church does not currently embrace a biblical ecclesiology. Instead, we adhere to that form of democratic congregationalism, otherwise known as being congregationally led and congregationally ruled. That is our local church's structure. What does that mean practically? How should that affect you as members? How should that affect me as a pastor? Why does it matter? Well, my friends, if you're here tonight and you are a member of FBC Edna, you have just as much spiritual authority in our local church as Brother Robert and me. There's some people here tonight who are 13, 14 years old. Members, and you have just as much spiritual authority as a 60-year-old man who has been in vocational ministry for over 35 years. That's the way our church is set up. You don't believe me on this point. You say, Dewey, you're, you're speaking in hyperbole. This can't be true. He's the pastor. I'm just, I'm just a kid. I'm just in high school. Go look at our bylaws. Better yet, come to a monthly business meeting. See how decisions are made. See how discussions are flushed out. I'll tell you everything you need to know about the way our church is structured. We are democratic congregational. We are congregationally led and congregationally ruled and when viewed from the lens of Scripture, this is a major issue that our church needs to address sooner rather than later. Because, my friends, until these issues of how our church is structured are addressed biblically, we're going to find that our church is going to be significantly hindered from being the kind of church that God calls it to be from His Word. We're going to continue to be plagued by problems that result from espousing an unbiblical ecclesiology. So, friends, please... Those here tonight and those listening, join me in praying for a resurgence of elder-led congregationalism, not just in our denomination, not just in the Southern Baptist denomination, but more specifically, we need to be in prayer for this model of church government to be applied right here in our home church. Indeed, for as long as we have opportunities to do so, may each of us be found faithful in our efforts to educate our fellow church members on the biblical and historical basis for desiring an elder-led church. And with that being said, we have finally reached our time of group discussion. I know this was a long lesson, 
and I appreciate your patience and your forbearance through a new subject by your own admission. Many of you, you're probably drinking water out of a fire hydrant. You've never even studied the biblical qualifications for elder. But my friends, as I hope you've seen tonight, it is a it is a objectively derived reality from God's word, and it is a historically attested reality in the denomination to which our church belongs, the Southern Baptist Convention. So we need to discuss this briefly tonight before drawing our our time of study to a conclusion, and I hope that you have some juice left in the tank, some gasoline left in the tank to get through this discussion and to have a fruitful dialogue as a group. So let's begin with question one. What are some reasons why churches could be apathetic towards transitioning into a more biblical model of church government? In other words, what does prolonged apathy or prolonged indifference toward biblical instruction reveal about the spiritual state of a church? Let's start with that question, right? Multi-part question. First, maybe start with the very first part of it. Why do you think a church would be hesitant to be elder-led? I mean, it's clear in Scripture that elders need to be leading the church, but why, why do you think that would be hard for a church to get there practically, Hannah? Well, first, I think that would take a lot of, like, deconstruction of people's, like, pride and arrogance. And that's a lot of work that people don't want to dive into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, if your church is predominantly ran by committees or predominantly ran by people who give a lot of money and are the most popular people and, and they just happen to be in the right positions and they've been there for a really long time, to Hannah's point, you're going to have to not only do a lot of work to reconstruct the church and change old habits, but people are also going to lose power. They're going to lose influence. And, you know, I think back to the Puritan documentary we watched, King James. He was like-minded with the Puritans. He, he, he allowed them to freely practice their religion at the beginning of the 17th century. But remember what he didn't do? There were some things that he did not do that the Puritans wanted to do to make the church more biblical, and he didn't do it because it would cause him to lose power that he had. A godly man, a theologically sound man, he didn't want to lose his power. He didn't want to lose his influence. How much more if you're dealing with spiritual infants or people who are ignorant with this reality, how much more will they be hesitant? To submit to God's word if it means they would lose power, influence, and that it would be difficult practically to implement the necessary change to be more biblical in the church leadership structure. Very good observation, Hannah. Any other thoughts on, on that question? Okay, second part of the question. What do you think prolonged indifference or prolonged apathy toward biblical instruction reveals about a church. If the majority of a church is being taught on numerous occasions that the Bible teaches something and they continue to ignore it, reject it, or they just don't care to do anything about it, what do you think that tells you or should tell you about that church? Yes, what? It shows you that they're ignorant to the Lord's word. Yeah, they're ignorant to the word. They, 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 um, they, they may not understand it. But let's just say for the sake of argument that 
they do understand it. I mean, let's say, like, it's one thing if it's the first time, but let's say that it's been multiple extensive lessons and discussions that have been had about this, and people still don't want to do it. What do you think? They're spiritually dead. Yeah, could be the fact that they're unbelievers, that they're unconverted, that they don't care about the Word of God. Because if you don't act on the Word of God, especially something as foundational to the local church as being elder-led, that could be a sign of not being believers. At the very best, it's probably a sign of spiritual immaturity. And as we know from Hebrews 12, if believers continue to ignore and reject a teaching found in Scripture, God's going to bring about discipline in their life. And if that's true of individual believers, how much more so is that true of a corporate assembly of believers? To continue to reject the clear teaching of God's Word. Again, we're not talking about a few months. Like, hey, you get exposed to it one time, and then we just expect change to happen you know, in a few months. I'm talking about years and years and years of exposure. That's what we're talking about here. Of course, we need to be patient when making changes. We all agree with that, right? Change isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a few months. But if you go several years talking about something, thinking about something, and nothing changes, that's when there's problems. That's when the church needs to take a hard, long look in the mirror and do some self-examining to see, hey, you know, why do I continue not to do what the Bible tells me to do here? Why does our church continue to reject this foundational aspect of how the local church should function? Just some valuable food for thought, I think, for all of us to consider on this issue. Now, on a, on a separate note, number two. What did you think of Dr. John MacArthur's definition of elder? And did, did anybody have any questions uh, or comments or anything about how MacArthur defined elder. Um, I thought it was a very robust definition. There were several scripture references. He clearly shows that overseer, pastor, and elder, they're all interchangeable terms. They all refer to the same office. Um, we've, we've talked several times in the past that doing word studies is great, but context is how you understand words predominantly. So a lot, some churches have taken those three words, some denominations take those three words, and they say, well, those are three different roles. Well, if you look at the Acts 20 passage and the 1 Peter 5 passage, it's clear that the author is using those words to refer to the same role. So word study is important, but context is even more important. It's the lens by which we make sense of what words mean. Did everybody understand MacArthur's role, uh, his uh, definition for the role of elder? That paragraph that we read early on in the lesson. I see a lot of kind of nods and no negatives, so I guess everybody's good there. Just wanted to throw that in here to make sure that everybody was was on the same page about the definition because that's that's crucial. It's crucial. Yeah. So you know how like churches that do have elders will have like a senior pastor and elders, like does that mean that they have the same like spiritual authority over the church? So it's a good question. Um, there's there's debate on that. Um, 
if you recall from, I think it was a few weeks ago, maybe even a few months ago now, I get the weeks all run together in our Sunday school class, but it was during Ignatius's time um, in the third century where the the idea of senior pastor came into play. There was this, there was this, it was the term bishop that was used. The bishop functioned as the senior pastor, and then there were the rest of the elders, and the bishop had supreme authority in a local church setting. I would argue biblically, I'm under the persuasion that um, I do not like the terminology senior pastor. I'll say it like that. I think the term should be just pastor or elder. Um, now, some people would argue, well, the senior pastor is first among equals. He, he's the primary preacher. He's the primary administrator. So we don't have a problem with the terminology. I personally, in a perfect world where I got to kind of dictate what labels would be made, I would just like to call everybody pastor. Because you're, when you look at the qualifications there, it doesn't say, now, if somebody's really good in these areas, you make him a senior pastor. If somebody's not so good in these areas, he's an associate or a youth pastor or a music minister or what have you. Anybody in a role of pastoral leadership, elder leadership, they need to have these qualities in their life. So I think as such, and if you look at Acts and, and Peter's passage particularly, there's not that distinction. There's apostles, right? The apostles were higher than the elders because Paul and Titus 1.5, he said, hey, Titus, I planted you an elder to go and find other men who meet the qualifications of elder. And here's the qualifications. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he tells Timothy, an elder pastor of the church of Ephesus, take what I've entrusted to you, go and teach godly, faithful men what I've taught you so they can take what they've learned from you and go and teach other godly, faithful men. So I see I see a equality. Um, I, I mean, again, I know there's solid churches that use senior pastor terminology. I'm not saying that, that um, there's anything sinful for doing that or wrong for doing that. I just don't think it's helpful. Um, I think it would be a lot more clarifying just to use the designation pastor. Uh, or hey, pastor of preaching, family pastor, youth pastor. We're all pastors. There's not this hierarchy, if you will. I'll tell you a story. Uh, it's a personal anecdote. I won't share the name. But I'll give you an example of how wrong this is um, and, and, and people's thinking, even when they're not trying to be wrong. I had a church member um, come into my office one time, and they made the comment to me, uh, we were talking about one of the issues going on in the church, this was back in 2020, and um, they made the comment, well, you know, Robert's the pastor, and I, I told him, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor too, I'm, I'm one of the pastors of this church. And they said, no, you're not. You're, you're the, you work with the youth. You're the youth pastor. He's the pastor. And I, I, as gently as I could, corrected this woman and said, ma'am, you know, biblically speaking, we both have to meet the same qualifications. We both have to have the same, um, same sorts of giftedness to be able to qualify for the role of elder. When I stand before the Lord and when he stands before the Lord, we're going to be viewed equally as under shepherds of his body. So I'm very much a pastor. Um, so that, that gives you, again, if, if somebody doesn't understand what is meant by senior pastor, they automatically think, hierarchy, he's the top guy, then everybody else is subordinate. And, and unfortunately, in a lot of churches today, that's kind of how it works. The quote-unquote senior pastor, they make all the decisions, they are the spokesperson, they're regarded as the one with all the authority, and then everybody else 
yeah, they're they're on staff, and yeah, they're 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 pastors, but they're they're really not the pastor. That that senior pastor, he's the real pastor. So there can be there can be some uh, some confusion with the terminology. That's that, that's all I would say to that. But good, great question, really good question. Okay, so number three, question three. In examining the chart of the biblical qualifications for the role of elder, which qualification do you think would be the easiest to model, and which qualification do you think would be the most difficult to model? And I'll share with you guys what I think would be easiest and most difficult. I might give you an insight into what I struggle with, so maybe, maybe not. Michael? I, I think self-control would... Would self-control be easiest or hardest? Uh, you have to have self-control to have practically all of the others. Mm. So, I mean, I, never mind. Well, no, I appreciate you trying to chime in. Any thoughts there? There's really no right or wrong answer to this. This is just we're looking at all the qualifications and just speculating. Some of you are women, so you don't have to, you don't have to worry about about serving in this role, but you definitely should try to model these roles because they are godly characteristics. Um, I feel like Michael had a really good point in that. Like, all of these have to work in conjunction with each other. So, yeah, like, a lot of them build off each other. Right, like, well, like, maybe it's, like, being so reminded could, could be, like, something completely, like, standalone in and of itself. Like, being above reproach and being respectable and nonviolent, gentle, like mm-hmm. all of those other ones work together. Absolutely. Whit, what do you think, buddy? I think self-control is probably the hardest because, again, it entitles everything. And so, like, or not really, yeah, self-control. And then I feel like the easiest would probably be, like, husband of one wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, ideally, you know, mo- most people today are not... Uh, Polygamy uh, advocates, so that could be pretty easy. But no, I you know what I, I like the self control as the most difficult one because the one that I said was most difficult gets to the heart of being self controlled. Because think about it, when you feel a certain way, when you feel strongly in your emotions, or there's a temptation that requires you to subdue those emotions, you're modeling self control, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Also, what were you saying? Like under some like self control right here, and then like there's a uh, not arrogant or quick tempered. That's probably like, well. That's the with self control. You know. That's, so I put I put not quarrelsome or uh, quick tempered as the the most difficult one because when you're in ministry, you're gonna deal with people who just rub you the wrong way, or they're a thorn in your flesh, or they're troublemakers, or they they just keep on sinning in a certain way, and you've got to discipline them or, or exhort them to repent, and then they get their feelings hurt. And they get upset with you. And it's easy if you are not patient. And to all of y'all's points, if you're not exercising self-control, it's very easy to snap or to talk down to them or you know treat them in a way that's, that's really not appropriate for an a elder or pastor to treat them in. So I, I'm going to change my most difficult qualification to self-controlled because they really all kind of connect to that. Um, and I believe self-control is the only fruit of the Spirit that's listed here. So, you know, that maybe, well, 
Oh, patient, right? Gentleness. Goes with it. Love, joy, peace, patience, mm-hmm. kindness. Yeah, gentleness is one. Where's, where's patience on here? Well, I feel like it just goes with self-control. Yeah. Okay, self-control, yeah. So, yeah. I guess not quick to... Yeah, that, that's patience. I mean, that's a flip side. So, yeah, no, self-control. Hard. Hard to do. We're all, and we all struggle with it. Now, you want to tell you, what do y'all think is the easiest, though? Definitely one of my or one who aspires to be honest. Not a recent convert. You think that's easy because nobody would, should put you in that position? Right, like, why would you be an elder? <laughs> yeah. The easiest one for me is compassion. Compassion. <laughs> no, it really is. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you kind of feel or you remember where you come from. Sure. And it makes it. Yeah. Also, the quick tempered is the hard one for me because I'm quick to want to, and, and so I struggle with that. Hey, we all, we all can, and we all do. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think also on the quality of like being mid, like all of the being mid. That's an easy. Would be like a hard for. Oh, it's harder for men yeah, than to control. Okay. Like that testosterone may, yeah. may fuel some anger. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what? I, you're going to laugh at what I think is the, the easiest one. Because it's, it just, kind of like with men, like if you're a woman, you can't be an elder. If you can't teach, you can't be an elder. But at the same time, in a lot of ways, if you put in enough Bible study and you, and you work hard enough at like putting your notes together, I think anybody can put together a decent sermon. We've got so many commentaries and so many resources out there today. Like, you can... You can fake the gift of teaching pretty well today. Back in, back in the day, if, if, when you didn't have commentaries and sermons all over the place, you, you pretty much had to like start at ground zero and build the house from there. Um, and guys, a lot of gifted teachers, a lot of sound theologians, they're not elder qualified. Some of them aren't even Christians. Just because you know the Bible well, just because you know theology, just because you can stand up and give a, a great message to an audience, that doesn't mean that you're elder qualified. It doesn't even mean that you're a believer. So, you know, that for me, I put that quality as the easiest just because, like, anybody theoretically can go up there and do a decent job. They put enough time and effort into it. Um, but again, to your point, I think not being a recent convert, you know, if any church is... You know, halfway knows your story. If you've only been saved for two years, you're probably not elder qualified. If you um, are a woman, you shouldn't even have the conversation. You know, we hear all the time that women who go to the pastoral ministry say, you know, God was just calling me to this. God was just calling me to this. Like, no, he didn't call you to this because it contradicts his word. He never calls anybody to contradict his word. I don't care if you think you had a dream or you heard God speaking to you or, or anything. It's, he didn't do any of those things because he won't contradict his word. Anyways, we've already had that sermon tonight. Number four. What did the history of the Southern Baptist Convention's understanding of elders reveal about the nature of our denomination? In your opinion, has the Southern Baptist Convention grown more biblical or less biblical over time? So start with the first part. What do you what what so if you were to summarize everything I said about the SBC's view of elders tonight, historically, where has our denomination been? 
historically? Where did it start? Uh, with a quantity of other. Yeah, started well. Started well. This is what the Bible teaches. We believe what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're going to do, right? Like, if the Bible teaches it, I'm going to do it. That was the mindset there, right? We're going to do our best to apply what Scripture teaches on this issue to our lives. But then what happened? I think people kind of got, like, a little entitled to, like, this is my opinion and my opinion needs to be heard. Wow. Very good, Wit. I think that's perfect. You know, in America, we're pretty entitled, aren't we? We think we are the greatest people, greatest nation. We're, we're superior to the rest of the world. My friends, I love America. It is a great nation. God has been so kind to our nation for 250-ish years. Or My math's not very good. I think it's about 250 years. Um, anyways, for over two centuries, for over two centuries, we've enjoyed a very good existence as a nation, right? But with that comes entitlement. It comes arrogance and pride. And when you pride yourself on democracy and majority opinion and voting to get your way, it's very easy, if you're doing that in every other club you're a part of, if you're doing that in your political realm, hey, why can't we do it in a church? It's like a club, kind of, right? I mean, I get to vote and speak my mind and get my way at the Rotary Club. I get to do this on the school board. Wait, what's the Rotary Rotary Club? Oh, it's like a, it's like this community club that people get together and plan events and get togethers and things of that nature. Oh, I've heard of it before. I just never knew what it was. I thought it was maybe like more like the country people. <laughs> well, country, or hey, country club. Think of a country club. At a golf course, you know, they got a nice little restaurant in there, some some pool tables, maybe a sauna, uh, maybe some massage therapy. You got a, you got you, you got all the bells and whistles. Hey, I give a lot of money. I get to vote on what we do at the country club. I like how that works. So why can't I do it at the church? I give a lot of money to the church. I I know the right people. So and I've been coming to this church for forty years. So why not? do things this way. So with, to your point, you make a great point. We're very entitled. You know, when the Bible, when we get bored with the Bible, we start doing stuff like that. Because when people start ignoring and dismissing and disregarding what the Bible teaches on something this clear, it's because the Bible is no longer good enough for them. They're bored with it. It's not sufficient. We've got to adorn it. We've got to do things differently. It's outdated. We're in a different time now. That's kind of the mindset. It's interesting that in the, with the rise of elder-led model going down, you have the increase of the um, feminist movement in America. You have the rise of the sexual revolution in America. You have the rise of women in pastoral roles in America. You have the rise of people viewing the Bible as just a bunch of fairy tales and myths and not authoritative. It's very interesting how those things start to rise and then the church starts to neglect this. So I think those are very good insights. Whit. Very good insights. And again, late, late 1980s, early 1990s, you saw some, there was a wave of conservatives in the SBC who wanted to get back to the roots today. 
There is a minority in our denomination today, and even in Texas, the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, there is a minority in America of Southern Baptist churches who want to do things the right way. The majority of the SBC, however, is not like that. The majority of the SBC functions like any other secular club or group out there. It's about money. It's about programs. It's not about truth. It's not about God's word. It's tragic. It should break our hearts. It should cause us to pray and to contend for a revival and a resurgence of scriptural principles in the church. Okay, number five. This gets to the so what. At a practical level, what can we do to ensure that our local church comes to the place of embracing an elder-led model of church government? We close the formal part of the lesson, part three of the lesson. We close by saying we hold to a view called democratic congregationalism. We are a congregational-led, congregational-ruled church. Michael Martin has just as much spiritual authority in this church as me and Brother Robert. Every decision we make is done by committee or by majority vote at a church conference. How do we get to Scripture? What do we do practically? What are some thoughts on that? I mean, it starts with like somebody making it very clear that this, like, Scripture is our ultimate authority. Not what we want, not our pride. Like that's what the church is is based on. Like that how can we not hold that as our as our standard? So so yeah, so practically you gotta have people in the church who are gonna draw a line in the sand and say with 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 love and respect but but with unwavering commitment. The Bible is our ultimate authority, and no matter what, we are going to apply Scripture and live by Scripture. Even if we lose popularity, even if we lose relationships, even if we lose money, even if we lose church members, this inerrant word that God has graciously given us and preserved in our language, He has given this to us so we can know who he is and how to honor him in this life. And those commandments are not laborious. They're not burden. They're a blessing. It promotes our spiritual flourishing. It brings him glory, which when he's glorified, we're satisfied. We know him. When he's glorified, if you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you want God to be glorified because when he's glorified in and through your life, you find joy. And satisfaction. So very good insight there, Hannah. Any other thoughts? How do we get this church where it needs to get to? I think pride has a lot to do with it because, like, I remember my dad has always told me, like, pride is the first thing thinking they knew more than God. They mean, mm-hmm. and like, I think sometimes we think we know more than God instead of just looking at Scripture with kind of like a like we just wash away everything, look at it with an open mind, mm-hmm. and then just like you can't look at Scripture with pride because. Like, God is the opposite of pride. Yeah. Yeah, he's purity. He's yeah. truth. He's, he's righteousness. He's self-giving, right? He gave himself to save us from himself. Uh, it's been well said. Um, I don't know the exact quote verbatim of Martin Luther. He said, I don't read the Bible. The Bible reads me. 
That's the attitude to have. When you go to the Word of God, you go as if you're looking at a mirror. And that mirror is the judge and the arbiter and the determiner of what you believe, how you think, and how you live, how you worship God. Yes? you got to be willing to stand even if it costs you friends, you know, even if it costs you popularity. Uh, the problem that I see with the church today is that too many people want to be friends with with each other instead of honoring the Word of God. Mm-hmm. We have broken hearts because of a lack of unity, but there's no brokenness over the lack of the Word of God. Yeah. And I think the problem, I think the way you get back to it is be willing to stand and, and let the chips fall where they fall because, yeah. you know, ultimately if we, we offend God, this is His planet, His world, yeah. His rules. You know, and, and that's what I, our society is, you know, and unfortunately the church is saying, you know what, unity is more important than the Word of God. Yeah. And the majority rules, and that is not the way that God set up the order. Mm-hmm. That is not what He says. And the problem is, is that, you know, then people will say, you're not being patient, you're not being loving, you're not accepting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And it's basically if you have a child and you tell, and that child wants to go touch the stove, and you say, no, it's hot. You know, but you, you you should just love them where they're at and let them burn their little hands off. Yeah. And so they learn, no, but you you, you you should have compassion and go to them and tell them, yeah. you don't know, don't do that. Whenever they go over there and they keep doing it, you swap the hand at yeah. them. And then eventually they're going to learn, you know, either if, if I try to go back, and then unfortunately that's what needs to be done with the church, but people are not willing to stand and be bold because they're afraid of what's going to happen as if the church falls, as if the world's going to cave in the hole that it makes. You know, a certain church. Right. And so what I'm saying is is they have to be willing to stand and and, and honor God no matter what. Amen. Well, you know, what I I would hope for all of us tonight to have taken away from all this is Christianity is so much more than I love Jesus and, and and that's that. We just need to love Jesus. That that's that's the start of Christianity. But Christianity is so much more than that. Guys, we just spent I don't know how long, it's been a very long lesson tonight, but we spent a long time looking at just the office of elder. Guys, this is a just a scintilla of the doctrine of the church. And, and we barely scratched the surface about it. What should that tell us about how much God cares about worship and about His Word and His truth? You know, we re- look at the Old Testament. Look at the Levitical laws. Look at, look at Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. If we're honest with ourselves, we read through that sometimes. We're like, Man, this is kind of boring. It's dry. It's rigid. What, what's it all here for? It's there to show you that God cares that much about precision and accuracy and truth and reverence and holiness. And he cares that much, my friends, just like he did in the Old Testament. Don't come in Israel. He cares just as much about the purity of his church in the New Covenant. 
So my prayer for us and for the listener is simply this. Take God's word seriously on all matters, even the stuff pertaining to the local church. Well, let us close with a word of prayer. I really appreciate you guys giving me your undivided attention tonight and participating in the lesson and group discussion. Lord willing, next Thursday night, we're going to look to the second God-ordained role of spiritual leadership in local churches, that of deacon. So hope you come back next week to learn about what the Bible says about how deacons should relate in the local church. But let us pray, and we will draw our lesson to a conclusion. Heavenly Father, in accordance with your infinitely wise and holy purposes, you have ordained for local churches to be led in a specific way. And we know that you have not designed the local church in an arbitrary or hasty fashion, but that you have a good and perfect reason for the manner you have established spiritual leadership roles. Father, because you are a God who is orderly and meticulous in every detail of creation, you have likewise given us clear and specific instructions in Scripture to ensure that our worship in the local church is a reflection of your very character. As we mentioned moments ago, Father, just as every detail of temple worship mattered to you in Old Covenant Israel, so also does every detail of local church worship matter to you in the New Covenant. And God, we ask that you would enable us to grow in our diligence to ensure that our local church is functioning in accordance with the instruction contained in your role, in your, in your word, Father, specifically in regard to spiritual leadership. And Father, we do pray that you will do whatever it takes to transition FBC Edna into an elder-led congregation and that our church will eventually be marked by faithful adherence to Scripture in every dimension of our congregation, would there not be a single iota in our local church setting that is not fully governed and shaped by sacred scripture? Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here tonight to sing together, to fellowship together, to pray together, to study this important subject. God, you are so kind to us to provide us with the relationships that we have with one another. And Father, we do thank you for the deep love that we have for each other, which we know is only made possible because you first set your redeeming love upon us in Christ. And God, as we leave this place, meditating on all of the truths we've talked tonight, ultimately being rooted and grounded on Christ, the one true foundation of the church, Lord, we do ask that these realities would cultivate within us an even greater commitment to magnifying you in the context you've entrusted to us. Bless us now as we leave this place. And even now, Father, tonight on Thursday, we ask you to begin to prepare our hearts to gather with your body here at FBC Edna to worship you in spirit and truth on the Lord's Day, the one day in seven you've appointed for your saints to gather on Mount Zion. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for tonight. Praying all of this in Christ's name. Amen.